0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm sitting here with my colleague Mark Pringle. (laughs) Hi, Barney. We will be talking about the reissue of Gene Clark's cult 1974 album, No Other. We will also be talking about the week's new audio interview, which is with Simply Red's Mick Hucknall. And we will, as ever, be talking about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages this coming week. First, it's our enormous pleasure to welcome our special guest, Mick Brown. Hi.
1: <laughs> I'm um,
0: Great privilege to be here, it really is. Well, I don't know about a privilege. <laughs> it's a privilege, no, a, privilege. it's no, a privilege for us. It's a privilege for us. The privilege is all ours. We're really, really delighted to have you, Mick. Thank I mean, you. Mick is living proof that... Great writers can also be really, really nice people. No, please. <laughs> stop, stop.
2: <laughs> there, there aren't, aren't many. Right <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but you, you are. You're, you're a writer that I've read since the seventies, and you know you just you just are a fundamentally decent human being. Yeah, we're we're very, we're great, we're, kind of we're really really happy to have you here. You will be talking a little bit later about Jean Clarke because mm-hmm. one of the pieces. That we're featuring is by you from 1976. I'm really looking forward to that. But we really want to start the episode by talking to you about your career as a music writer. And I know you, you, know, you, you are now a respected feature writer for The Telegraph and have been for some years. But you, you certainly started, did you not, <laughs> as, as a music writer. In fact, <clears throat> as a real like music can we even say kind of fanboy, soul music I think fanboy. we can say
3: music fanatic soul boy, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I had a very blessed sort of adolescence, if you like. I had an elder cousin, a very close family friend, who in turn had an elder brother who would go to the Flamingo, and yeah. listen to jazz and so yeah. forth. That was Anthony, and John inherited Anthony's taste, and then John very kindly passed that on to me. Yeah. So if I remember the first live gig I ever saw... I was about 14, and it was James Brown's first ever gig in Britain. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, uh, my God. In What, Walth- what, what, what year was that? Uh, 1965. Wow. When he played, yeah, so it was the time of papa has Got a Brand New bag. Oh, my God.
0: Uh, the
1: Invention of Funk. Uh, you witnessed the birth
0: of Funk. <laughs>
1: in Walthamstow. <laughs> in
3: Walthamstow, all places. Papa's And it was like seeing God. I mean, it really was. It was like seeing God on roller skates. Oh, it must um, have been so thrilling. Just going across the stage there with the famous flames and the, 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 the cape. Danny Ray putting the cape over the shoulders, the whole nine wow. yards.
1: Fantastic. fantastic.
3: Uh, so from that moment on, really, I was... You were a slave to <laughs> <for soul> music. <laughs> I was a slave to song yeah. music. <laughs> Yeah, so it was a very, very privileged sort of beginning. And in fact, it took me a long time, really, to broaden my tastes and to sort of take on board you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and yeah. you know, all the exciting things that were happening in sure. in English rock and roll at that time. I was very monomaniacal, you might say, about, <laughs> about R&B. Excellent. And a wonderful man named Pete Wingfield... I'm sure we will be familiar. Yes, who
1: produced some of my band's uh, tracks. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. Well, well,
3: Pete was running a soul music fanzine at that point called Soul Beat. Yeah. And when Pete went off to university, I I, I took that on. So I would sit there in my bedroom hacking away at an old typewriter <laughs> using my mother's Roneo machine to print this thing <laughs> out. Um, and I had a Saturday job in a record shop in West Croydon uh, near where I grew up and would sell, the, sell these copies of Soul Beat there and by postal order and so forth. Actually, it, it was a wonderful education, really, because I, I would write to American R&B companies, Duke, Stax, Atlantic, all sorts of people, and every now and again this sort of care package would arrive from the United States with these uh, priceless 45s and these beautiful 8 by 10 promo oh. photos.
1: I mean, they must have been so intrigued. I know that that was Pete's experience, is how really intrigued they were by young white kids in England being absolutely knowledgeable and crazy about R&B music, about soul music. So they, they, they must have just loved it, you know.
3: I think so, yeah. I mean, they were always incredibly gracious, I mean, uh, they were incredibly kind. I, you know, that obviously would have been the experience of the arch fan of, of this period that we're talking about. Dave Godin, of course, yes. you know, who, who set up the Tamla Motown Appreciation right. Society. And basically
1: organised the first Tamla Motown tour, which was Fairly disastrous. They play to empty halls up and down the country. Yeah. Exactly. It's extraordinary to think yeah, back on that, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Well, at that time, you know, the, the the music that has now come to be regarded as historic and legendary, mm. I think for most people, most people in Britain, were, we're largely unaware of it. And
1: largely mm. It's strange. To, um, Motown, I mean, as a child, I was telling you earlier, you know, driving up to my parents' place in the country and listening to two-way family favourites, and... The Supremes and the Four Tops, not much else, but those two acts got a lot of airplay on what was then pop, pre Radio 1 pop radio. And certainly for me, I remember this, as a kind of nine year old, just hearing Levi Stubbs' voice coming out of the radio and just the hair standing out the back of my neck. So it had a fair amount of traction. Also, the mods were very into all that sort of stuff. So mm. there was a sort of subcultural support for it. So it's yeah. kind of, you know, it, it, and, you know, I think the musicians themselves were amazed when they came over and found themselves playing to largely white audiences, which simply didn't happen in America. Mm.
3: Yeah, well, there was a place in South London, uh, the Orchid Ballroom, Pearly, where I would go. Uh ah And they would regularly have. Uh, I saw Stevie Wonder there. Yeah. I saw I can see Turner there. Mm. Clarence Frogman Henry, oh, the Allons, okay. and these would be you know touring around Britain. Yeah, I yeah. guess they'd play the Twisted Wheel in Manchester probably, and somewhere else absolutely in, 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 yeah. in Leeds. Yeah. Garnet Mims, who was who was one of my favourite soul singers, and still mm. is one of my favourite soul singers. So it was wonderful to be able to see these these acts. Sure. And the the other thing I think is, is really interesting is that for a whole generation of young white kids in London throughout. England, it was also a great sort of consciousness-raising exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, when I read and learned that people who were my heroes, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, Marvin Gaye, Mm -hmm. when I read that if they toured in the American South... They couldn't eat in the same restaurants as white people, stay in the same hotels as white people. Would have to play to segregated audiences. Yeah, sure. That was certainly my first awareness yeah, yeah. Of, the, of
1: the iniquities of uh, uh, we ran segregation. segregation. Yeah. An interview with Chaz Chandler when he's in, an animal having come back from this is a couple of weeks ago. We we, we put, posted on the site. He just come back from the animals first tour of America and they played down the south, and he was just scandalised. You know that, whether he'd been aware of it before or not. But the experience of going down there and seeing the fact that, I mean, he thought that black artists couldn't play in the south. In fact, they could. Obviously, the Chitlin' Circuit existed. He wasn't aware of that. But but the the rigid nature of the segregation about you wouldn't get black people going to the same shows as white people and so on. So mm. it was for him it was just eye opener. Yeah. Since we're talking about soul music, Mick, <laughs> the first of
0: the pieces that we're featuring by you is an interview with. Marvin Gaye. Uh Now, this isn't from the 60s or even the 70s, in fact. It's from 1981. Right. The Guardian, you were then writing for The Guardian. And it's a really interesting encounter with a strange man. (laughs) (laughs) A stubborn kind of (laughs) fella. Stubborn kind of (laughs) fella. When he's actually living in London at this moment. You You describe him living in this rather opulent
3: West End flat and doing interviews in a tuxedo. That's right. Well... (laughs) It was a very, it was a very strange and indeed memorable encounter, and I'm, I'm not quite sure of what his diary was like at that time. But I arrived early for the for the interview, as I as I tended to do, and the door to this uh, the service flat, just off the Edgware Road, one of those big apartment mm-hmm. blocks. The door was opened by a very lovely landlady, who I took to be his. Girlfriend, and there was a a small child running around as well. I'm not sure it was his child. And so I waited, and and then Marvin came in. He was wearing the tuxedo when he came back. This is sort of about five o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) He's going to be going off later on in the tuxedo. And conducted the interview in his bedroom, lying on the bed, sort of reclining in a a rather (laughs) pasha like sort of way. Uh, But he was. Brilliant. I was just entranced and, and captivated. And, and you've got the sense that here was somebody... This is around the time he'd been living, hadn't he, in Hawaii in a bread van. He also lived for a period in Ostend,
1: of course. That's I think it's before he period. went to Ostend. Right. Yes, yeah. so and it's in the sort of intermediary... It's just before sexual healing was recorded. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. In fact, it was the
3: time of his last Motown studio album, which I think was called In Our Lifetime. In Our After,
0: which I reviewed for NME. so it was interesting to read about... This and you talk about his surprisingly faint
3: enthusiasm. That <laughs> <album>. <laughs>
0: um, I think I think
3: he was very disillusioned with Motown. Yeah, I think he was, and man. I think that sort of that, that was clearly reflected yeah. in the interview. But the sense I also got was of a man sort of torn between God and the devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he talked a lot about that in in, in very sort of almost mystical sort of and, yeah. and rather sort of melancholic terms about about the struggles that he'd had with himself. Yeah, yeah. And clearly he's he really was a tormented man. guy, wasn't he? Was he was a very tormented yeah. guy, yeah. yeah, very tormented guy. And that I've,
0: makes his interviews very interesting because he's... It's almost like he's got no boundaries. He will he will just say things that, you know, any hmm. press officer would say, don't don't talk about <laughs> that. He's extraordinarily open.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, his father wasn't just religious, he was fanatically religious. He was
3: a preacher, I think. Uh, yes, yes he, was, he was, but
1: of a particularly sort of odd sectarian type. You know, mm. he wasn't your average gospel man, you know. Mm. And the tensions existed within the family from from his childhood, I'd imagine, mm. sort of formed him in that respect. Yeah, I mean, because others had that. Al Green had that, to some extent. Little Richard's is a great example. But Al Green and Little Richard sort of somehow managed to live with it emotionally far better than yeah. Marvin did. Mm. The, for Marvin, it really was a, a painful struggle. Yeah. And also the fact that he liked his sex and liked his drugs. Right. Which... You know. didn't really square with the good book, did it? No.
0: <laughs> he, says, it's really he, talks, he says to you, you're asking him about what's going on. He says, I'd become such a creep, basically. I'd made Barry Gordy very angry. Mm. And he says, I just turned within and prayed for help and guidance and said,
3: the heck with all of them, I can do it myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was an enormous, uh, a great sort of turning point, wasn't it? In, sure. in, in his, in, Not just in his career, but, yeah. in, but in the history of Motown. Yes. I think it was a seminal sort of moment uh, in Motown. It,
1: it let Stevie Wonder off the leash. Yeah. I, th- exactly. I think
3: very directly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And of yeah. course,
3: Barry Gordy at that time, he, he, he didn't really like what's going on. <sighs> I mean, because it wasn't commercial. It wasn't in the sort of, the, it wasn't out of the standard sort of Motown playbook. I think he had deep reservations about it, which changed, of course, when it became the biggest selling album <laughs> yeah, so in Motown. Like, yeah, we always believed in full like, albums. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that, yeah, that you should say, what, what did you say, he's been a bad boy, I've been a bad he boy, said, I'd I've been i He i would become
0: such a creep,
3: basically. I mean, there's one thing that only Marvin would say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who else would say that?
3: I think that, that goes to the very odd relationship he had with Barry Gordy, because, of course, he was married to Barry Gordy. Yes, yeah, right. He was the golden boy of Motown. Yeah. Yeah. He and always look, kicked against the traces. He wants yes. to be Perry Como, for God's
1: sake. know. Como I'm, I'm,
3: was was one of his idols. I, and yeah. I, but
1: I mentioned his father. In a sense, Barry Gordy fulfilled the same functions yeah. as his father had. I mean, not it's too easy to say a father figure, but the same tensions. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely exist, right. That,
3: um, it's actually right yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Can we go back from there to sounds? I'm intrigued as to how how you got from Soulbeat to Sounds <laughs> and it's quite a
3: jump. <laughs> yeah, well I I, I Soulbeat finished when I was about 16 um, so there was quite a jump. I'd always wanted to be a journalist yeah. but I I didn't have the necessary qualifications to 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 join a local newspaper or anything. Mm-hmm. You didn't alone, train as a journalist. I didn't train as a journalist. Um I remember, uh, it probably was on my 16th birthday, my parents giving me a, a sort of journalist style trench coat. <laughs> uh, thinking that would do the trick. Thinking that might help me along in my career. And literally walking up and down Fleet Street, going into every sort of newspaper office, yeah. which were then on Fleet Street. And saying, you know, give me a job, but that didn't work. So, so I, I did all sorts of various, all, all sorts of things until I finally managed to sort of wiggle my way into, into journalism. And then I went to live in America in 1974, right, right which is where Jean Clark comes in, in, in yes. a sense. And so I was writing there in Los Angeles, living in Los Angeles, writing for the Los Angeles Free Press, little bits and pieces for Did
1: them. you write for the Los Angeles How much did you practice? write for the Freak, as
3: they called um, it? Not a lot. Right, I mean, I was off. just doing sort of interviews with musicians and artists. I must dig
1: the archive is available online. Oh, really? Yes.
3: I was there with the lady who's now my wife and been my wife ever since we got married in Los Angeles, in fact. Is she not a married... Is she a married No, she's, 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 she's just... She, she's, she was there. Yeah, she yeah. was there. She, she I went, first of all, to live in New York, then Patricia joined me and we took a... A fifteen dollar bus ride across America in something called the Magic Bus, which was this sort of <laughs> <laughs> poor driven by Keith Moon, <laughs> <laughs> poor man's version of Ken Kesey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and ended up living in living in L.A. and, and okay. were so poor at one point that we were actually selling our blood to sort of to, 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 which you could do in Los Angeles at that point. Uh, so I'm getting off the subject. No, no, it's no, no, so, no, no, no. on the subject. <laughs> no, it's actually <laughs> really interesting because
0: the second piece, which is this wonderful piece you wrote about Matt Rebenach, Doctor John. In 1999, you mention paying a visit to Mac when he was really on his uppers in the mid-'70s in LA. That's right. You talk about going to see him in the valley, and this extraordinarily poignant image that you paint of all the... Like Dr. John Gregory stuff, all the costumes and masks, and everything were sort of in this in his garage. <laughs> and I thought,
3: oh my God, what an image. It's true. It's Do you true. remember that? Very, very clearly. I mean I mean the house was a was a classic sort of valley, you know, single-story sort yeah. of ranch style yeah, yeah. house, suburban ranch style yeah. house. And when I got there, Mrs. Rabinac was sort of hoovering the, the carpet and, and sort of chiding the good doctor, you know lift up your feet, Mac, you know, so, <laughs> so she could sort of get the... This like, really demystifies <laughs> Dr. John. <I'm> so. <laughs> yeah. But we uh, love it. Uh, we love it. And he was, uh, so he was sitting there on the sofa being told what to do, basically. And so we went into the garage and, and he showed me all of this extraordinary sort of paraphernalia and so forth, and uh, which clearly he was very deeply involved with and yeah. loved. And, you know, I think he was a, he was a serious practitioner of... Some sort, the dark art, <laughs> the dark art, and we then went to sit in a park, public park, and he started rolling joints. And this was dangerously near a children's playground, so he, he was sitting there on a on a park bench smoking a joint. Still sort of thing people do just interview. ordinarily, <laughs> you know, isn't it? But then, then,
1: yeah, he was but, he was a full on junkie at that point. Yeah, was, he, he, did you th- was he? I think he must have been. I, I mean, would, I didn't, he would have been. I, think. I
3: didn't sort of talk talk about that. Yeah. He was being managed by. Uh, and I hope he's not alive to sue me for this, but he was being managed by a rather suspicious man named Roy Silver. Ah, oh, Roy Silver, yes. I yeah, who, that, was, who was a sort of L.A. music business. Shyster, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, name, the name Longing.
0: was it, <laughs> Roy Silver.
1: Yeah, uh, Silver a, by name. The, the Ritz comes flopping through our doors <laughs> <our, laughs> tomorrow. Right. He, he'd he'd done gone. a very bad album
3: called Hollywood Be Thy Name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I think was one of one of his yeah. worst albums. Really. Right, right. But then I subsequently, many many years later, I spent a fantastic afternoon with him yeah. in New York, where he was recording Duke Ellington. Yeah, Duke like, This is the piece that yeah, I'm referring great. to. It's a lovely piece. Oh, thank you so much. Well, it was it was just a magical afternoon. It was a, a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon downtown New York. Yeah. So I remember the streets were sort of empty, going into this very anonymous building, and the studio yeah. was on the third floor or something. And it was just him and his recording engineer, d- delightful uh, woman who was, who, yeah. you know young woman who was who was recording engineer, and just to be able to sort of sit there and eavesdrop on that session. Fantastic. And at one point, I think it was his bass bass guitarist, yeah, he, David Barrad, David Barrad, yeah, who, who worked with him a lot, came in and they just sort of took time out from the session, uh, sitting around in the in, in the in the control room, reminiscing about. The old New Orleans, growing up in yeah. New Orleans. And about Big May Bell. Big May Bell. Well, there's this wonderful...
0: St- <laughs> they, they talk about cutting Big May Bell's corns. Because she was, she was so large, she was so big, yeah. she couldn't actually cut her own corns. That's
3: right, and, that's right. And so David and Mac yeah. would, would do that for her. And, and just it so so making it seem like a sort of religious ritual. Yeah? You can imagine <laughs> yeah. these young... White, oh uh, well, Dave is a black guy, but 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 Mac yeah. sitting there in the uh, b- yeah, backstage yeah. at a club in New Orleans, carefully sort of shaving off Big Maybell's horns. It's a rather sort of
1: very poignant sort thought, of glorious. image, I thought. Yeah, it's I, 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 I just vividly remember the Hollywood, be thy name, etc. Him becoming less and less interesting and more or less sort of disappearing, mm. and then it's odd. Record Dr. John Plays Mac Rebinett came Fantastic out, album. Which is just such a fantastic so record. 82. And that was around a time where he got he clean. Yeah. It was yeah. around then that he got clean and he produced that and its subsequent album. And then in, after that, it was just marvellous. He had this second act in American lives he absolutely had a second act in his Amer- very American life and went on to make some fabulous records I love the records and standards he did um, mm. uh, I forget the name did, of the did, did, did an album of Johnny Mercer song. yes yeah, yeah. And, and basically had a very very comfortable middle age and later years which is just wonderful did a great album with the Black
0: Keys guy which is which which was one of the last yeah. albums he did, which is which is terrific. Mm. Oh, it's, it's it, it, glorious. It, it, you know, it's, it's and clean, such a lovely man. So yeah,
3: just a big heart. No, thing. he was a sweetheart. He was wonderful. Yeah. I, I I just and so I I fun love with him. him really, we've he's, got this
1: wonderful audio interview on the site where basically he and Jerry Wexler are just rapping.
0: Yeah, they're working on the gumbo. That's right. Working uh-huh. on the gumbo. It's certainly, like and he, know he's still um, a junkie at that. He,
1: yes, yeah. but but he, he, he the, the two of them are just talking about stuff and the guy could just tell stories forever you know and it's, it's interesting I mean a white guy in New Orleans and he was a white guy he kind of tends mm. to get slightly glossed over in a very very segregated city mm. and he's working with people like Bobby Charles another white R&B guy but also working with Alan Toussaint and so on and so forth so, I mean what
0: a the life. white guys down there were very black <laughs> some of them some of them were <laughs> I, I would that,
3: say blacker shadow. than some yeah I think I mean he was he he was a regular fixture at what at the uh, Cosimo
1: Matassa's yeah studio, yeah, yeah.
3: wasn't he? So he was he was playing on all sorts of all mm-hmm. sorts of sessions from a yeah. very young age. Yeah.
1: I mean in, in in you know, paid nothing and so I mean that's why he went to Los Angeles in the first place. Where he was paid a lot more. Where he was paid a hell of a lot more. Yeah, right? yeah. as a sort of I jumped the Wrecking Crew. He was like the, the third pianist called to a Wrecking Crew yeah, session. Played sort played of on Sonny thing. and Cher record. Yeah, abso- and absolutely. As, like as, as was Leon Russell. lame And he calls
0: them in your piece, he calls them lames. lame, lame. <laughs> Sessions. <laughs> so, like, I get... Yeah, Sonny and Cher word. were lame. It's
3: such a great But word. you talk
0: about his Hulk crew you talk about that L.A. period, which, of course, birthed Gree Gri and the Night docks and all that yeah. stuff. It's just, there's a lovely phrase that you're in the studio with him, this is 99, talking about Ellington. You describe him beautifully, and I done one in-person interview with him and this is absolutely how I remember him. He has a big child's face hidden behind grey whiskers and sleepy eyes which close as the music plays. The cheroot burning an inch or two of ash between his fingers until it falls unnoticed on his jeans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember oh, that, big, that big that big face. It indeed was, a big yeah. baby face. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. just With this sly smile coming out. I felt there. really sad when he died. Yeah, yeah. I um, did too. Just Not just because I love so much of his music, yeah, yeah. But, but I just have, have this memory of, of such a darling yeah. man. But you I'm know, also was...
1: really glad that he lived as long as he did. Given his lifestyle, he could have died a hell of a lot earlier than yeah. he did. And that he had, as I said, the second act in his life. He had a really wonderful last, last sort of two decades.
2: Baby, it's you and all the stars above. We're just
0: Less lovely man, and the <laughs> last of the three stubborn kind of fellows that we're going to be talking about, Phil Spector, of course. You've uh-huh. written a number of books, and and I would, well, I mean, it's not for me to say, but probably the, the book that I know you best for, and 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 many do, is, is your monumental biography of Phil Spector, uh, which came out. I mean, This is extraordinary. Tell us all about. How did you get to interview? The, everyone had wanted to interview Phil Spector for years. <laughs> how did you get this?
3: Uh, And this is 2003. Yeah, well, it was was myself and a a colleague and friend at the Telegraph magazine then, Casper Lewin Smith, Mm. and and we we had a sort of hit list of, you know, who are the great people that that we should really try and interview. And Phil was near the top, if not at the top. Yeah. And so we managed to track down a telephone number. (laughs) uh, (laughs) The local directory. (laughs) And called this telephone number and got through to his... PA, eventually his PA, Mm. who was Hal Blaine's daughter. Hal Blaine's Uh, daughter? Yeah, was Michelle, who was absolutely delightful. Michelle, of course. And she said, we'll think about this, and she came to London at one point and went to meet her and and talked about... And there was a a sort of an air of kind of protectiveness about this whole exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, Phil doesn't like to talk, and there are things that Phil doesn't like to talk about. Anyway, so eventually it happened, and I went out to Los Angeles, booked into the Hyatt house, the riot house, and I was told to wait for a phone call, and a phone call came saying, it's not going to happen today, which I thought, sinks. it's not, it's not it's going to happen out. at all. <laughs> anyway, I, eventually the phone rings again, and I was told that I'd be collected from the Hyatt at midday, the following day. And I came downstairs at the anointed time, and there was this magnificent 1965 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud parked outside. Uh, with a with a liveried chauffeur, uh, <laughs> it's straight out of, of sort of Sunset Boulevard, isn't it? Or S- Citizen Kane, of course. She well, uh, the small crowd had gathered to look at this car, yeah. and I sort of shambled out of the hotel, and, and the doors held open. I get in. He then tries to start the car, and, and it doesn't start. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. More bathos for the episode. <laughs> so a cab driver comes over and gets some jump leads, and so we had to get jump lead the thing, starting. Fantastic. But eventually we set off towards Alhambra, which yeah. is a very unprepossessing part of L.A., where Phil was living in this extraordinary Pyrenees castle. And, boy, this felt like a car that could tell stories, you know? It was... <laughs> it was there was a black silk mm. curtains, you know, these a full and sinking. It's like like being on an ocean liner, uh, and we eventually get to the house and uh, walk up the hundred and forty steps as Phil um, like people to do. I just had <laughs> just had the most extraordinary extraordinary interview. Yeah, uh, it is an extraordinary interview. Well, uh, nothing to do with me. I have to say. I mean, I, I think it was just a moment when yeah. he was when he was somehow in a, in, in a rare little pocket of time, you yeah. know, where he was yeah. ready to talk, almost the first thing I said to him was, how are you doing? And his reply was, I've not been well. Yeah. And it just went on from there and, and talked about how he had demons inside mm-hmm. and I'm not schizophrenic, but I take medication for schizophrenia. My parents were first cousins, so I've always wondered. But anyway, so just wow. the most probably the most extraordinary interview I've, I've ever had, the privilege of, uh, of of conducting really. But when I left the house early evening after I'd been there four or five hours, the phrase that kept resonating in my mind was, I'm trying to be a reasonable man. I'm yes. trying to be a reasonable man.
0: Yes. He says, I'm not ever going, I'm never going to be happy. Yeah. Happiness isn't on, yeah. but I'm trying to get reasonable. Yeah. I mean... That's just strange. Yeah. Well, I rereading this this interview, and of course, I, I mean, I read I read the book, tearing down the wall of sound. It's just sort of how, in a sense, Phil is still the same guy that Tom Wolfe wrote about in what sixty five. Yeah, the tycoon of tea. Yeah. This this extraordinary little guy would all kinds of hang-ups and problems, and his father committed suicide, but still almost kind of playing this Citizen Kane, this Charles Foster Kane of pop role. Absolutely. I mean, and you mentioned that zippity doo was the first Spectre record you ever heard. I Mm. mean, I expect for all of us who kind of worship Phil Spectre, I mean, I really do think he was the greatest. Yeah, me too. The the ultimate kind of pop visionary. Those records are extraordinary. So you'd had this kind Mm. of relationship with those records, all the way through to 2003. And then you, then you meet this hauteur. And, and, and does he not shoot that
1: woman? Well,
3: this weak? is the most extraordinary thing of all. Yeah, I mean, what is it? Four weeks after, five weeks after the interview, my piece was published in the Telegraph magazine. Extraordinary picture of Phil as I had met him, wearing his sort of Louis Cannes wig. Uh, yeah. and, and with this sort of Prozac smile on his face. Uh, uh, and the cover line was "Found Pop's Lost Genius." That was on the Saturday. On the Monday, I was visiting the Telegraph office, and somebody came down from upstairs and said, w- w- "What did you say to upset Phil specter I said, <laughs> I said "It oh, was not your fault." <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there is a coder to this, which I'll tell you, <laughs> but I don't want to b- belabor the story. So we turned on the television, and there was the castle with the, the yellow police tape and the detectives in boxy suits, you know, moving around. And at that point the story was, unidentified woman found shot dead in Phil Spector's right. house. And Casper and I looked at each other and said, God, he's read the piece and he's shot Michelle Blaine. Okay. That was... That's what you thought. That was thought. our yeah. automatic assumption. Yeah, yeah. And it was only some hours later that it was revealed that it was this poor, poor woman, Lana Clarkson, yeah. who he picked up in the House of Blues yeah. Taken back to the to the castle, and who was evidently trying to leave. She was shot sitting at the sitting beside the back door, with her purse over her shoulder. Yeah. And one can just Phil, of course, had had a terrible history of not wanting women to her, leave. Women to leave. That's right. And one can just imagine her saying, "Phil, it's, tell the chauffeur it's, it's time to go home." Mm-hmm. It's time. When she got in the car, leaving the house of blues, she leaned across to the chauffeur and said. It's just one drink. I'm going to be quick. And Phil had said, "You don't talk to the driver." So she'd been in there uh, probably two, maybe maybe three hours. So I, I think he detained her much much longer than she yeah. wanted to be detained. She yeah. was she was she was trying to trying to leave. So yeah, there was this and and, and uh, a curious coda to this is that is that more recently David Mamet
2: mm-hmm. made
3: a film called Spectre, an HBO film about the trial, which starred Al Pacino as. Spectre and Helen Mirren played the lead attorney mm-hmm. and the opening scene of the film shows Helen Mirren arriving from New York in the other attorney's uh, office in LA uh, and he says uh, he's brandishing some papers and says Telegraph Magazine London Phil read the piece and it set him off <laughs> oh, no! I haven't seen that film, but my God! Um, wow. That's, that's not the case. You you know, <laughs> this is, you're, you're convinced it's fiction. Right? I, know, no, it, I know it's not the case, because okay. I subsequently spoke to Michelle. Right. I, 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 she said, as I was leaving Phil's house, she said, you know, be sure to send us copies of the magazine. Mm. So we FedExed over some early copies, early binds, to arrive on the Saturday morning in mm-hmm. L.A., the time it would have been published in London, mm. uh, they either didn't arrive or, she assured me, they hadn't been read... They weren't read until she didn't even see them until after this. Sunday night. I think that he shot Dana Clarkson. Mm. Wow. So she assured me I had absolutely nothing. And I don't think it. A relief. No, no, I mean, it would have been but, presumptuous arrogance to think that one would have. Yeah. Um, so Phil Spectre is still in prison.
0: Um, He's still in prison. Um, yeah. But you can read Mick's Extraordinary biography of spectre at the very least do read this piece which is free for a week on on rock's back pages this in a sense ties in with the sort of general kind of weirdness of la <laughs> <and> hollywood <laughs> Babylon, doesn't it? anyway because we're we're going to talk now a little bit about about gene clark sure. um whose extraordinary album no other is being reissued with the usual bunch of sort of alternate takes tomorrow by mm. 4AD, of all labels. Mm. I mean, it's, it's got that kind of cult status. Yeah. Like a label like 4AD will we'll put it out again. You've come in with your original copy, which I'm guessing you bought in in
3: Los Angeles when you were living there. Well, Did you... I, I, um, I, I didn't buy it, I'm ashamed to say. Um, it um, was, it, it, just, it's a promo, it, copy. It's a promo, it's a promo yes. copy. And I was, I was thinking about this because it, it's a promo copy that came... I can't honestly remember if it was in the same package, but certainly in the time frame as from uh, Warners. Van Morrison's "Veedon Fleece. Right. Tom Waits, I guess it would have been the... F- it would have been uh, Harder Saturday Night, probably. Uh, was it, it probably was Harder Saturday Night. might have been Harder Saturday yeah. Night. And, you know, two or three other things. I mean, it was like a vintage One. moment that these records were being sort of... Yeah, yeah. So it was a great, great, great sort of period, really. And what an extraordinary record this is. I mean, it's it's... It's abs- its very easy to say about all sorts of music. It's singular. It's yeah. unique. Yeah. But those are adjectives that genuinely yeah, do yeah. apply to this record yeah. because it came so out of left field. Yeah, uh, I-, I think anybody who-, who was aware of the birds, aware of Gene Clark, particularly exactly. aware of the Dillard and Clark stuff. Uh, Where a white light, mm-hmm. would, have, would have just been bowled over backwards by this. yeah, yeah. Or horrified. I, or horrified, you, you know, in, Or, in, or in fact,
0: just it was just ignored by most people. That's yeah. the truth. Yeah, Asylum, yeah. it was on David Geffen's label. Geffen listened to it, and uh, the story is he was so enraged that Gene had only given him eight tracks, not appreciating that some of them are really quite long. Mm. Um, the story is that he picks up the acetate, put it in the, the bin and said, make a proper fucking album, really? and it was deleted by Asylum two years later. I mean, it, it's heartbreaking, actually, because yeah. it is a masterpiece. I, I'm really going to stick my neck out and say that. It's, it's an absolutely extraordinary record, and I think it really broke Gene's heart. I don't mm. think he ever quite recovered.
1: I, I think he was a very complicated man in the first, first place. That documentary was shown, I think, on Netflix quite recently, and... You know, this is a man who's... We are talking about Phil Spector and yeah. Marvin Gaye and men with their demons, and clearly Gene Clark carried his demons around with him. Uh, I think we forget how influential he was on people. Like David Crosby's songwriting style is very much a sort of a, a, a quite cheap clone of Gene Clark. Gene Clark was responsible for so much of the bird's most important stuff. Again, rather forgotten how important it and he was, it was that their found. first successful songwriter. That's right, of course. That's right.
0: And um, one of the things that created the bad blood within the birds was that when the Mister Tambourine album came out, he had two or three credits on it, which the others didn't yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly, Gene is barreling around Hollywood. That's right. In Steve McQueen's maroon Ferrari, <laughs> and, and the others don't even have cars. And boy, did so they resent this? Yeah. So he was getting the
3: royalties and they were... They, yes. yes.
0: Absolutely. And shagging Michelle Phillips.
3: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Not bad.
1: No. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it, it didn't last, did it? That didn't last. It didn't last. So <laughs> no.
0: But I mean, and so we actually have a, a piece, I'm delighted to say, not only the three pieces that feature you, but one of the three Gene Clark pieces is an interview you did with him in 1976. Mm. And you do talk about,
3: no other. I do, yeah. <laughs> I, if I remember rightly, he was he was pretty sort of faint-hearted about it. He doesn't he doesn't sort of say this is my masterpiece. No, and, and,
1: uh, no, I, no you know, he's even I, more heartbreaking yeah, to me that he, he didn't it's
0: really realise.
1: Well, you know, if if a record uh, yes. fails, people tend to disown their failures, and maybe an element of that oh, in it. That that may be true. You know. That may be true. I mean, if I remember correctly,
3: sorry, I haven't read the piece recently, but it's. Uh, he talks about it as a somewhat sort of unrealized sort of project, that, mm-hmm. that, that a concept that that had not been studied long enough yeah. to work.
0: Is yeah. what he said. Yeah,
3: God knows what it would have sounded like if it had been, been studied realized. long enough to work.
0: But I, I mean, I think it is one of those. It's one of those sort of mystical masterpieces. Yeah. I mean, the story. There's a, there's a big. Piece in the new Mojo or the latest Mojo about no other because every every rock critic worships this album really. I mean, mm. it's just it's just one of those records. And so the story is that he you know he kind of fell out of love with with LA and he moved up to Mendocino, in Northern California, and started reading all these kind of Zen books, not just mm. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, <laughs> but he and got Car- very Car- into Carlos Castaneda. Carlos Castaneda. He got into all this stuff as LA rock stars did in that in, in that era. And out of it came these really remarkable songs. I mean, the the one that I always think is is the most extraordinary is Strength of Strings, which is about six minutes long. And it is really one of the most remarkable things ever recorded in the name of rock and roll. Yeah,
3: no, I agree.
0: And some misunderstanding from a silver file. The, these songs are... They've got the kind of grandeur and power and mystical kind of magnificence about them that
3: uh, I, I can't really compare it to anything. I mean, the lyrics are particularly interesting because on so many levels they're completely obtuse and obscure, but leavened with these sort of fragments of, of sort of wisdom, mm. fragments of sort yeah. of terrific insight... But I think if you would actually sit down and try and decipher them, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you'd have, a, you'd have a bit of difficulty, really. And, and it's clearly, uh, I mean, the story goes, wasn't it, that he was there meditating on the edge of the cliff, you know, overlooking the Pacific. Yeah, the, in the, Mendocino. It, yeah, yeah, and these were the processes that, uh, through these processes, uh, no drugs involved, which was probably rare for the time. I mean, his his uh, partner, wife at that time, insisted that he, that he wasn't taking mescaline, he wasn't... Mm-hmm. wasn't taking LSD or whatever. And
0: yet there seem to be these drug references
3: in the lyrics. Very you know, much we so. We all need Very, a fix. Exactly. And... I would think precisely that, yeah. I don't know whether that's just a figure of speech of the time or whether Maybe. it's... Whether it's
0: I mean, he literally... certainly did his share of drugs. Yeah. yeah, He
1: actually ended up falling into a bottle.
0: I mean, he did become a chronic alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, um... and dying so young, yeah. 46.
1: Yeah. When you dying died,
0: so so yeah. tragically young. And actually, it, it, really to sort of underscore that tragedy, the the last of the of the pieces that we've selected is is by Steve Rosa from Goldmine published June 91 it's essentially so Gene has just died, and, and I, think, I think I'm right saying Gene has just died. And Steve writes about the very last gigs that Gene ever played, which were in LA in what was called the, the Cine Grill, which was in the old Roosevelt Hotel opposite the Chinese oh, Grauman's okay. Chinese oh, Theatre. Right. And it was a five night stand at Cine Grill. Booked on the basis that the birds had just been inducted into the Mm. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But it was woefully underpromoted. Almost no one showed up. It's it's heartbreaking to read this story. I mean, Rosa says he he was great. Mm. He was wonderful. But the fact that Gene Clark, who was always the mysterious... Mm. Guy and the Birds, wasn't mm. he? In a way, the fact
3: that th- those were the last shows and nobody bothered turning up to see oh, it—that's terrible. It's, yeah. tragic, it's heartbreaking. It? You do get the sense of him very much as throughout his career, as very much an outsider yeah. and, and a slightly—I don't want to say lost figure, but a slightly isolated figure. Yeah. A, a man in his own dreams, you know—not not not someone that's really yeah. sort of able to reach out and connect and. The opposite um, but, of David Crosby in a way. Yeah.
0: I mean he yeah, was <laughs> I think quite introverted, quite melancholic. A real sort of a sort of he yeah, was this kind of Missouri farm boy who'd come to LA and he he was a real sort of poet,
3: a kind of mystical poet. Yeah. And did I mean Crosby bullied him, didn't he, in the birds, I Every, Well, I mean you, you
0: you mentioned, I think, somewhere in the piece about Chris Hillman saying something like Gene wasn't that important to the birds. I mean he, he wrote I'll feel a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah. And these beautiful bowers, uh, like here without you and if you're gone oh my
3: god yeah, they are just yeah an extraordinary thing for for chris hillman to say and i'm sure he would he would re- regret, re- regret that having, now. Having, having having yeah i having, think so having, having said that. yeah but what's so extraordinary about no other is is that it is this kaleidoscopic sort of um yeah i, I don't want to say car crash because that's very <laughs> negative but it's this kaleidoscopic fusion of so many different elements yes and if you look on Wikipedia, the, 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 the description on Wikipedia, it's sort of country, folk, gospel, jazz, yeah. <laughs> R&B. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: it it, it doesn't sound like a Los Angeles record. It doesn't. It doesn't have any of the fingerprints that one associates certainly with. Certainly of that, period, of that certainly period. period. Even though it was sort of, in some sense, the, the
0: ultimate yeah. mid-'70s self-indulgent, $100,000, mm. I think, was spent yeah. on it, with this madcap producer, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Kaye, and all these bit, I mean Claudia Lanier sings well, of on. Course. It. Of course. <laughs> of course. But you go from like, like the first track, Life's Squares is Full, is is almost almost like pure country rock yep. of the period. And then by the time it gets to the third track, the title track, it's almost like Gene is doing this kind of almost black exploitation funk. Yeah. Because it's
3: it's very strange that. Yeah, all of these different elements being mm. being brought in yep. and somehow melded together in a way that that, that actually works. You know, it's not as if they're fighting against each other. No, they they all complement each other. Brilliant arrangements. Yeah. Extraordinary arrangements. Brilliant playing. Jesse Ed Davis' guitar stuff is just... phenomenal. Fantastic. Craig Durge, uh, piano. I mean, it's an album that just repays... Endless listenings because you're always finding something new in those arrangements. You're always finding something new in. I never in get his lyrics. No, I've me too. Never I never mean, get It
1: is it. extraordinary that it has had this second life. As you say, it did nothing when it was first and released. It's such a tragedy
0: that he never got uh, to uh, experience. Uh, experience yeah. that. And yeah. really,
1: it's the last ten years. It's become it's starting off as a sort of cult item and a sort of like spread out from there. And now it's regarded as one of the great... I
0: mean, records, and and furthermore, there's lots of other ex- great Gene Clark stuff. Um, we, we, we're putting together a, a Spotify playlist, which mm. includes tracks from, like, White Light yeah. and Roadmaster and the Gosden Brothers. I mean, I, I, mean there's, I could probably mm. put together 50 tracks yeah. that Gene Clark had some hand in, whether it's Bird's track. And, I mean, they're all, I think... Great. I mean, truly great. Spanish guitar. Spanish guitar. Which Bob Dylan said is one of the greatest songs ever written.
3: I I mean, he's unique. Yeah. Bob Dylan came, you know, he came out with these sort of extraordinarily insightful comments about other people's music. I mean, to say that about Spanish guitar, I know. of course one always thinks of what he said about Smokey Robinson, you know, cool. America's greatest poet. You know, good taste. Bob, Bob that, had that good Dylan. taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he knew does, what he, he was does. talking about.
0: So listen, tomorrow, rush out and buy the 4AD reissue of No Other. It really is one of the great rock and roll albums, I think. <laughs> I that. Uh, one, um, one of the great uncategorizable
2: <laughs> records. <laughs>
0: We're now going to... Thanks so much for your just your your input and insight on that. No, Mick. my pleasure. We always like. say at this point, stick around, because we're now going to talk about everything that's new for subscribers to Rocksback Pages, starting, Mark, with the week's audio interview.
1: Yeah, this is... Uh, once again, Maureen Payton gets into a cab with an From the Mail on Sunday. From the Mail on Sunday. This is her routine. For a broad shirt. Um, and in this case, it's simply reads Mick Hutnell. It's actually shortly to be no longer Simply Red's Mick Hunt, We're about to do their last tour. He's already decided to break up the band effectively. It's not about music. I mean, it's a Mail on Sunday piece. It's about lifestyle and so on and so forth. Um, and he comes, you know, I mean, I have my huge reservations about them as a band, but he comes over as kind of quite an amenable sort of bloke. But he talks about his successful winery in Sicily, the Salmon River in Ireland. It's the equivalent of Roger <laughs> trout farm. It, it? It's it's so. very, very much so. Uh, she she will play a very brief clip right now, which is where she kind of, like, asks him about the clothes he's wearing. He denies knowing what he's wearing, then lists everything. <laughs> Apart from the trousers. <laughs> Apart from the trousers. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's very elegant, very slim and elegant in that lovely coat. Is there any, any particular designer labels I can mention? this I've is absolutely a, no idea. This is a very star conscious magazine. I've got a Dolce Gabbana coat on. I've got a, I think I've got a Oswald Bolton jacket. Wow. I've got a, a Wintel shirt. I don't <laughs> know what the trousers are. That's alright, don't worry, that's enough to be going on. with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he doesn't know what the trousers he's wearing. Um, he's got a diamond in his tooth. Uh, he talks about that. He talks about cutting down on boozing. Later on, I mean, she asks him, did you do much cocaine? He says, um, I don't... Sundays, correct, the Mail on Sunday is the correct place to, to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and also, I have no idea, He'd, he's another art school product, another mm. English art school mm. rock and roll product. He talks about Manchester, kind of loving Manchester and feeling that the Gallerbrugger brothers had rather let the city down. Lowered the toe. Lowered the toe. Mancunia. She also, you know, he's the man who notoriously apparently slept with 3,000 women, though the Guardian debunked that last week, I think. But we'll play another clip now where she puts to him that, you know, you put it about a bit as a bachelor, (laughs) and his response is fair enough, I suppose. love you.
2: It's lovely, you know, because I mean, lots been written, obviously, about your, you know, past and um, uh, dates and relationships and what have you. <laughs> but I just so. had a lot of fun being a bachelor. That's what I did. Simple <laughs> so, as that, really. Yeah. It's not rocket science. Just a lot of fun. <laughs> but like anything, you know, it's, when you when you get when you gain wealth and money and all that business, and you you could you know you can drink champagne every day. And, think it all day, but it gets boring, like anything. If you do yeah. anything you know, all the time, it gets boring. Yeah, You start to want more in your life and you want to do different mm-hmm. things and, mm-hmm. and grow and develop, yeah. I give it all up for you. I give it all up for you. I give it
1: all up for you. I give it all up for you. Which kind of leads very neatly onto where he talks about his then-partner, now-wife Gabriella, their daughter... He talks about his relationship with his father and his family, but not his mother. His mother was absent from the get-go, pretty yeah, much. There was
0: something I didn't know yeah, about that his mother walked out on her on her child or children when Mick was two years old. Yeah.
3: Wow. yeah,
0: Which I think, and I mean, he clearly is aware that that might have something to do with the fact that he's always chasing something <laughs> from women. Yes. <Yeah, laughs> um,
1: <laughs> though he, he does talk on it. It appears that it's still the case that he's actually found someone who, who's really... Yeah, good for him. Uh, and he, he he sounds very happy in that respect. He talks about his relationship with the Labour Party as well, because mm. he was one of the number ten New Labour. He was a New mm. Labour pop star. Uh, uh, and he he thought the Iraq War was disastrous and mm. fell out of love with the party and Tony Blair in particular over the Iraq War. Mm. Uh, he talks about the music scene today, the kind of the carry, what he calls the karaoke X Factor thing where singers exploited the, by the Simon Carles as well, So, you know, it's pretty interesting. You, you know, you, uh, uh, Maureen laughs her way through the interview, as always. But no, it, 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 it's pretty good stuff. To put it we- in
0: context, Simply Red's new album, Blue-Eyed Salt, is out tomorrow. Simply Red, to all intents and purposes, are Mick Hucknall now. But they still can sell out the O2 for yeah. like two or three nights it's, in a row. Is the new album covers or is it original composition? It, it's actually original stuff. He's okay. done covers albums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did so a Bobby, Bobby Blue Bland yeah. album, which I mean I, you know, whatever else you think about Mick me, I mean yeah. Kudos.
1: Well like, absolutely. And, and the no. other major kudos is that he 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 financed Blood and Fire, which is the great reggae reissue label, was his basically his his doing. Uh, yeah. And they were the first people to properly remaster to digital. Full stop. Right. I mean, uh, people like Atlantic, WEA were ruining Aretha Franklin's past mm. by putting out really shabby CDs, really badly mastered. Blood and Fire. They listened to the twelve-inch singles, the original pres and so on and so forth, yeah. and matched that in digital format. Their releases with Jeff Barrows, mm. brilliant sleeve notes, fabulous artwork, and they sounded absolutely gorgeous their re-release of the, the 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 heart of the congo's the congo's album it's just breathtaking sounding, mm-hmm. you know? beautifully done. Right? I mean, these these are classics of sort of roots reggae yeah, and dub, uh, I, I, and he was behind that. He's the guy who financed it. He also was the guy who pulled the plugs in the end because they weren't recently working making the money. Mm-hmm. But for a long stretch, it was the, the great source of re- I think he re- comes re- out re-
0: really well in this audio interview. Yeah, I I really, I really like so really the guy. Yeah. And furthermore, I listened to particularly the first three Simply Red mm-hmm. albums, produced by Stuart Levine, and then Alex Sadkin mm-hmm. did the second one. And
3: I think there is some rather good music. Yeah, on yeah. there. Well, he certainly had good taste. Oh yeah. I mean, as you and mentioned, could you, sing. You, yeah, and you mentioned mentioned Bobby Bland. I mean, I think I am right in saying the first single. Mine is too tight to mention. Valentine Brothers. Valentine yeah. Brothers. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Good it's taste, a, it's, good a, it's a fantastic yeah. song yeah. to Good to, covers to, he to cover. Um,
1: yeah, I think that. I mean, I was sent to write songs with Lamont Dozier, a very unfortunate, miserable week in Los Angeles, on the back of the fact that he had been writing with Mick Huttnall for Simply Red, and they'd been very successful. And actually, it's the least interesting Simply Red stuff. Oh,
0: I have to challenge that, because there's a song on the third album, A New Flame, mm -hmm. called You've Got It, which Mm -hmm. Mick wrote with with Dozier. I, th- I think it is. It's okay, is it? I think it's an absolutely brilliant right. song, well, um, uh, and I know he did other. <laughs> things. No, it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's just magnificent. Yeah. Um, but
1: but no, I mean he comes out of this interview really rather well. He's very diplomatic. He's obviously guarded enough. He's done enough interviews to know what not, what to talk about and what not to talk about. But is also fairly honest about stuff, you know. So it's good stuff.
0: Mick, as someone who kind of grew up worshipping the likes of Bobby Blue Band, what was your take on those sort of white boy bands, particularly in the early to mid-'80s, who started doing this, this kind of sort of pale version of Soul? Did you have any... Did you think some of them were good? Did you think some of them were atrocious? Or did you, did you kind of reject it all sort of I, out of hand anyway? I, I'm, I,
3: I'm such a sort of insufferable purist. <laughs> <laughs> we admire insufferable <laughs> purists. We suffer insufferable purists. I, I had, if I may, I had a very educational moment with, not meeting Bobby Bland, but when I was living in Los Angeles in 74, the Sounds uh, LA correspondent at that time was, was a very nice, tremendous guy called Andy McConnell. Okay. Who is now rather improbably the antique glass expert on the Antiques Roadshow?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact, <laughs> folks.
3: <laughs> and Bobby uh, Bobby Bland was playing at the uh, Coconut Grove in mm. the old Ambassador Hotel. Yeah. And so we went to see him, and we spent some time in the in the in the, in the rather lovely garden beforehand, getting very very stoned, uh, and got into the got into the uh, to, to the theatre early and, and actually had a, a stage side seat. Wow. And Bobby Blue Bland was, was I need to say absolutely incredible. It was yeah. another seeing God moment. But we were the only white people, I think, in the in the audience. And, and prior to Bobby Blue Bland was a comedian, a black comedian, who came on and and uh, I can't honestly remember who he was. But but there were lots of sort of sex jokes and drugs mm, jokes. Yeah. Uh, and at some point in the middle of his act, he he suddenly said, "And we got some honkies in the audience. <laughs> Let's have the spotlight on the honkeys." <laughs> So Andy and I are sitting there <laughs> stoned down of <about> our
2: heads. <laughs> Immediate <laughs> yeah, paranoia
3: wearing these shit grins while there were sort of ten oh, minutes of 10 minutes of white people jokes. It was, it was a bit... <laughs> It was a very salutary moment, a very educational moment. And see, I should go and see Bobby Brooke at the Coconut the Grove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this isn't what I signed on for yeah. when I bought the oh, tea. That's a great story. Um, but it was, I knew what it would have been like to, to have been a Pakistani and a Jim Davis. Yes. Yes. So that, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But it was a, yeah. a fantastic... Yeah. I mean, Bobby Blue Bland was just, my God. Oh, he's fabulous. We, we, we love him, don't we? Oh, we do love <laughs> him. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: We'll yeah. hear an, a final clip later from the hot audio, yeah. won't we? But we're now going to turn our attention to the highlights among the new pieces. It's, I'll, I'll,
1: I'll whip through this fairly quickly. I mean, we're going straight to 1965. Richard Green on the phone to the Yardbirds, who are in a party up in the Hollywood Hills. They say it's a racing car driver's mansion up on the Hollywood Hills. And he gets to talk to... He's talking to the Giorgio Gomelski. And they're being turned out of a hotel because of long hair. It's a bad scene with long hair and Sonny and Cher and all of that. That's Giorgio Gomelski talking. Then Kim Fowley gets on the phone... These cats are really happening, and all society people are really screaming for them. It's gone all pop art. It's really wild, man. <laughs> that vintage foul is
0: it? has gone all
1: pop art. <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 he we're, was right. Uh, what was Richard Green's nickname? Was he the Beast? The Beast. The Beast, the beast you know, at the, at the end of the phone, transcribing all this with a pretty large whiskey Did jam. you ever meet the Beast? I did meet the Beast, yes. Did you, <laughs>
3: you, 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 you survive I survived the Beast. It was a fleeting encounter. OK, I mean. yeah. probably the best kind yeah. of encounter.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, you know, Keith Olsen's got endless beast stories. Oh, you sure. Know. Uh, in fact, talking about Keith Olsen, Mike Grant, his, his other name, writing for Rave, interviewing the Trogs. And of course. Reg Presley, who actually then stayed a great friend of Keith Olsen's, yeah. didn't he? Absolutely. Re- Reg Presley says, politics is the politician's job. Religion will leave to the clergy. Playing and singing pop music is our job.
0: You have to read that uh, in, in a West Country accent. So go.
1: And he says, don't you take a drug I'll pack it in this business. <laughs> if you can't that do, is literally if, outrageous. If, if you can't do a show without filling yourself full of dope, you're not worth a light, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs>
2: really. do it. I knew
1: really. you could. Jones in Record Mirror, it's, it's a bunch of capsule album reviews, but, you know, marvellously, in the 26th of July, 1969, the albums concerned are Stand by Sliner Founders. Your favourite. And Quicksilver Messages of Service's Happy Trails. Another favourite. Of favorite. yours and mine. Uh, yeah. And he says of, of Stand, he says, Speeded up tapes, freaky improvisation, and some terrific stereo effects are used. Plenty of raw R&B is thrown in. This group begin where all the others leave off. Which is a pretty spot-on thing yeah, to say. You know.
0: what did you th- having seen James Brown's first show, and having interviewed people like Garnet Mims for your for the Soul Beat mm-hmm. fanzine, what did you think when people like Sly and the Family Stone started coming along? Did you see them as part of a kind of continuum? Absolutely. Loved it. Mm. Yeah,
1: I
3: loved Sly and the Family
0: Stone. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because without james brown of course no no sly but but sly did something but without
1: sly no 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 no, no, uh, no p funk you, yeah, no you know no um, precisely well, i think that's
3: a that's a that's a moment in time as well where yeah. where soul music is sort of beginning to take on yeah. all sorts of outside influences sure, you know yeah. obviously psychedelic temptations stuff, stuff yeah. temptations yeah. uh yeah i mean it seemed a very logical sort of um very logical step forward yeah and of yeah. course by that point my my uh, fanatical purism to uh, to, to soul music was... (laughs) Had to be slightly diluted. (laughs) Had to be slightly diluted. (laughs) (laughs) Acknowledging that perhaps white people were capable of making... (laughs) On to
1: 1970, Chris Welch sees the nice playing, I think it's for the Albert Hall or something like that. Oh no, it's the Royal Festival Hall. America proved the climax needed. Keith appeared at the Festival Hall organ to play the introduction and up went a great roar of approval as Brian Lee took up the theme. Emerson sprinted back to the stage and pounded the final choruses while ecstatic idiot dancers gesticulated all around I mean any of us who went to shows at the time well remember the idiot dancer one or two of them he said covering his face may have been indeed one of the idiot dancers <laughs> <laughs> well uh, Jesus was the great uh, idiot well, dancer well, yeah he was yeah, quite a late period
0: was he called Jesus it? he was, he was, was Jesus. called yeah, Jesus yeah, yeah, William was this often yeah. naked or yeah. yes, almost so that, naked. I mean
1: he was always in the way when I was seeing some band like Pink Fairies yeah. under the Westway there would right. be Jesus with his, getting his keck up, kecks off you know but um, but actually, he was quite a late-period dancer. I mean, I remember yeah. going to shows at the Albert Hall in 70, 71, 72, and in those days, you'd all bunk in, go up to the top for free, then pile down to the bottom, and the security would all British Legion guys who just couldn't deal with... It. So we'd all be in front of the stage and be a sea of idiot dancers just gesticulating as Chris as Wells, Chris as, Wells as Chris reports. reports.
3: These are fantastic historical documents, actually, aren't but they? We oh, think so. We, we think so. <laughs> I, I honestly think they are. Not don't. everyone but they're, they're, does, they're, but we do. There's social history. This is musical it. This, this is, is it.
1: absolutely it. I mean... This is why we try and sell, the, let's say, subscriptions to universities, not just on the basis of the music content, but it's this is real, genuine social history, yeah, uh, yeah. fashion styles, behaviours, all kinds of things. Moving on to seventy-seven, well, two of my favourite people, Brian Case, who's one of my favourite writers, interviewing the great Valerie Wilmer, another the, one the, of my favourite uh, writers. Uh, 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 who's Valerie isn't one of our writers. No, I'd love her to be. Yes, we tried. She's a great photographer. I bought both of her first, her first two books and her book of photography back when they came out in, mm. in the late 70s. She was an extraordinary thing, a, w- a white woman writing about black music, it, right from the mid-'60s onwards. Richard Williams has this great story about... He really understood how important she was when they were waiting in the bar of s- some hotel and the Duke Ellington Orchestra comes in it, and one by one, each member of the band went up and gave her a hug and sort of said <laughs> hello. Yeah. You know, the whole band loved Not Val Wilmer. You know. Did you
0: cross Val's path never, in that have. era? No. Yeah, have. That's,
1: that's extraordinary. Um, uh, yeah. So she says, basically most writers don't have any idea what being a musician is about. They're just pundits, which is, you know, pretty, pretty, Ooh, pretty, pretty brutal. In <laughs> <laughs> she says, but then she, she says in the piece, Uh, Brian talks about... She's got stacks of albums, including all kinds of R&B records and so on and so forth. She says, ''A jazz friend of mine came round here one night and he said...'' Oh, I don't care for Ruth Franklin that much. She's too obvious. How dare people say she's too yeah, obvious? Yeah, yeah. You know, which is just she's quite an intimidating she's, person. I, she's militantly feminist. Yeah, as I've, many had, well know. I've had some dealings with him. I, l- I liked her enormously. I did find her slightly unnerving. I I, I, I hope to reacquaint You've, myself with her. You I mean,
0: tread a bit carefully with her. Um, but she
1: is such an important yeah.
0: figure, yeah, and yeah, her yeah. books are I, magnificent. I this,
1: this this last quote: is, the idea of music as an art is kind of luxury you know i think music is a functional thing and it can be threatening mm-hmm. she, you know she, she's moving on to a couple of years later the second of jeff barton's pieces which christened the new wave of british heavy metal yes and this is about Def leopard and she talks to Def leopards singer joe mum she says i can't understand why people like get your rocks off i think it's horrible what does it mean anyway anyway it turns <laughs> out later on she's in the audience of the show. the Clearly loving every second of it. So that's from sounds. So yes. Just because by this point, seventy
0: nine sounds is quite identified with with method. It was starting yeah. to well, When method. you started writing for sounds, which I'm guessing was probably about seventy three, four, 74, 74, 74. It was. It was. What
3: would you characterise sounds as in that period? It was sort of. It was a. Uh, A a lot of something and a a little bit of nothing. It it was covered a pretty broad waterfront. Right. uh, And I I think, truthfully, it it didn't have the identity of Enemy, didn't have the identity of Melody Maker. Maker. It had some terrific writers. Yes, absolutely. um, And
0: probably had, can claim more responsibility for covering punk than any of the other... I, I, I think that's... Yeah, I think John,
3: John Ingham was... was the, the great that, John Ingham. One of the first people, if not the first And Jane so, Suck, of course. Yeah. So John Suck. Savage. Giovanni D'Adomo. John Savage. Now, now you're naming the names. Yeah. I'm going yes. to revise my opinion. It was a very important...
0: No, no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, more name, more, it, it, yeah, it gets more and more mentioned. mention.
1: It's curious that, in retrospect, my job, of course, going back through this stuff, it stands up a lot better than I thought it did at the time. I'd stopped reading Sounds by that point. I read it from about 71 to about 72, 73, for about a year mm. or two. Looking now, you've got Dave McCulloch, who's writing about post-punk yeah. really interestingly, yes. you know, one of the first people to really take Joy Division seriously, yes. for example. So, so it, it, it was a good mag. Yeah. Um, I, 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 was, I, if I may
3: say, I, I, I was certainly very grateful to Sounds, you know, yes. uh, because it, it, it gave me... Work and I was able to work, and you know yeah. we had a very happy association. Who's With
0: the people. editor that you wrote for? At uh that point? It would have been Alan, Alan Lewis. Lewis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and
3: Barbara Sharon. We've was got there, Barbara was... coming in. Oh well, that's for the gonna, podcast. Well, that's going to be a great. It's going to be a Sounds
1: podcast. Month. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's, that's going to be a great. And, and of course, it's, it's wonderful Penny Valentine. You yes. know, Penny Valentine, uh, Penny, you know, Who is one of the few the writers? Great who managed to do the transition from being an out-and-out out pop writer... into in, being for, a rock writer. ..for Disc and Music Echo in the yeah. mid-'60s to being a serious rock writer in the early-'70s. And wrote for Street Life, as you did. I mean, yeah. we, we don't have time to talk about Street Life,
0: but one day I'd really like to, because what a great yeah. publication that was. Fantastic. Life was fantastic. Yeah. Well, well,
1: I, I think I bought every issue. I wish i kept them. We've we, got we, a pile of a, them here. We have got, got, got a pile of them We've oh, got a pile yeah. of
0: them here, if yeah. you ever want to nose around
1: um, them. Back to Death Leopard. Actually, Steve Clark, who's the drummer who lost, his arm, yes, is right. Uh, he says, In a car crash. he says, with bands like the pop group and Gang of Four, music's gone back up to A level standard again, and the kids are getting pissed off with it, which is actually quite a smart observation, yes, you know. Yes. And it's interesting, he should pick on the pop group and the Gang of Four, mm. you know. This guy's a, from a Sheffield metal band, you know, um, sure. And then the last of Rick Savage says, we all want to go out on stage, pose, wear dinky white boots, tight trousers, and have all the girls looking at our bollocks. That's us. <laughs> Barry Manilow interviewed by Wayne Robbins for Newsday in 89. And he's trying to reinvent himself. He's he started bodybuilding because he was, you know, he says, he says, I never was a sports-minded fellow, not that I am right now, but I'm into giving myself a little mini body. I had it with being a skinny malink. Nice bit malink? of all day Jewish sort of skinny malink.
0: Well, Wayne Robbins, the author of mm-hmm. this, emailed me earlier in the week, and well, he, he sent us this piece, mm, yeah, yeah. in fact, from, from Newsday. And... He says, you know, I was trying to get Manolo to just be honest about his sexuality. Everybody knew that he was gay. Mm. And at this point, 1989, he still couldn't come out
1: and say it. He's, talking, he later, he's talking about his long-term girlfriend all the time in this interview. You know? Right? It's he,
0: extraordinary he, he to hear the say, back yeah, it's Like, he, is, yeah. is Wayne really... Come on, man. <laughs> Everybody knows anyone. You might as well tell me. Yeah, It yeah.
1: Yeah. D- doesn't really come into the piece. He, he no, I think he, he was he, obviously he, under yeah. strict orders yeah. not to... But Manolo does say some interesting stuff. He says if Billie Holiday got on stage at the Apollo, she'd be booed off it because she does not do vocal ac- acrobatics the way everybody seems to want, which is, leads us straight into what The Last tip will be, which will be Mick Hucknell talking about the yeah. X-Factor type type of... Right, I mean, American singing.
0: Idol, at such a... weren't even in existence yeah. at this point uh, And, and the of, idea that someone yeah. like
1: Billie Holiday would be booed off stage well, she because would. she doesn't do the sort of acrobatics. Simon Cowell wouldn't have liked Billie Holiday yeah no. Last piece is, well, Chuck D, Public Enemy, interview by the marvellous Neil Kulkarni and Melody Maker in 95. And Chuck D's just endlessly fascinating. He's rented quotes.
0: He's it, just, it, it's just a quote machine. Yeah, I it? mean,
1: uh, you know, <laughs> I, but he's very interesting about... Because uh, certain of our American journalist friends of Rock's Back Pages hate him because he had the nerve to say sing the rap that Elvis was a racist. Yeah, in one of the really early hits. Yeah. For them, that's it. Chuck D is just uh, i don't know sure. this is, is, he turns it round in this interview. He said, uh, talking about Rick Rubin, and he says the proof's in the pudding. You look at what Rick's done in the past five years of Deaf American in terms of innovation. Then look at Deaf Jam stuck in the mud. Russell was always into R&B. Rick was into rap and rock and breaking boundaries. Mm. And, says, and later he says, I look at what the Beastie Boys have done since they struck out alone. They've made some heavy moves. They're autonomous. They've taken to another level. Deaf Jam is just chart chasing. You know, which is... That is it's
0: you know, really interesting to hear yeah. that because you'd almost expect a kind of resentment towards the Beastie Boys. but But I would say most of the good rappers...
1: Understood. The oh, Beastie yeah. Boys worked for real. Yeah. They were absolutely. absolutely particularly legit. with albums like Paul's Boutique* onwards, yeah. where they were really sort of innovating sonically. I think know? I think everybody woke up like, my God,
0: these guys are doing things that, yeah. that we haven't done. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, it's, it's a great, great, it's a, it's
1: a great, it's a great interview. I, I mean, Neil, I, I posted one of those quotes on Facebook yesterday, and Neil came back saying that was the first time he had been to New York, been to America, and he but driving over from the airport at night over one of the whichever bridges, yeah. Brooklyn Bridge and seeing the city in front of him and just... Been just amazed by it. Yeah. Uh, and he's a, he's a really good writer about hip hop. Great. He was, he's wonderful. Terrific. Well, I think that
0: brings us to the end I think of it does. the episode. It remains for both Mark and I to thank you so much nice. for coming yeah. It's been such a joy. Brilliant. It's we it's probably could have talked for another like five <laughs> hours really, really and not even it. scratched the surface. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very well, much Our thank pleasure. You. you know, really. Well, that's fantastic. a bonus if, if you've enjoyed it. We certainly, <laughs> we certainly we certainly enjoyed it. It's been a, a, a real honor to have you here, yeah. Mick. On uh, keep doing the old thing. <laughs> um, We're
1: going to go out with a, a clip, which is Mr. Hucknell talking about precisely what we've just been talking mm-hmm. about—the X Factor karaoke singing yeah. and the way that artists aren't being allowed to emerge melisma overkill and all culture. that. yeah yeah uh, so aside from that we'll just basically say goodbye at this point I guess
0: we'll <laughs> basically say goodbye <laughs> so this is a very basic goodbye from me and from me and from our special guest Mick Brown thank you <laughs> goodbye <laughs> see you next week
2: just that, you know, the, the music scene that we're in now is, is not the music scene that I particularly feel part of, because, well, we're predominantly in the age of glorified karaoke, and, and uh, I think creative outlet for melodic music that's that's written and composed and is, is, is struggling because the, the karaoke side of it, where you're just talking about someone who can sing, um, but for nothing else mm. is playing such a predominant yeah, part in the good. consciousness of society. that I think it's affected the interest that can come from somebody writing a great song. Yeah. There's only 20 places in the charts, yeah. and if they're all filled with ex yeah. and talent, sure. competition and winners, you know, then it's going to have an effect. Mm. So, I don't know how relevant. Yeah.
1: That was Mick Huttman in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2009, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Mick Brown. Visit his writer's page on the Telegraph website to find more of his writing. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. To enter our 50th episode giveaway, running until November 22nd, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash giveaway. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Cool. That was, that was huge fun. Thank Brilliant. You, I know, because, because it's gone on for hours. I know, so, it's, I mean, it's, it really is. It
0: really, we, we, we have to think of
2: Jasper <laughs> <laughs>